Repudiating the National Debt by Murray N. Rothbard, an audio essay narrated by Harold L. Fritchie. Most people, unfortunately, apply the same analysis to public debt as they do to private. If sanctity of contract should rule in the world of private debt, shouldn't they be equally as sacrosanct in public debt? Shouldn't public debt be governed by the same principles as private? The answer is no, even though such an answer may shock the sensibilities of most people. The reason is that the two forms of debt transaction are totally different. If I borrow money from a mortgage bank, I have made a contract to transfer my money to a creditor at a future date. In a deep sense, he is the true owner of the money at that point, and if I don't pay, I am robbing him of his just property. But when government borrows money, it does not pledge its own money. Its own resources are not liable. Government commits not its own life, fortune, and sacred honor to repay the debt, but ours. This is a horse and a transaction of a very different color. For unlike the rest of us, government sells no productive good or service and therefore earns nothing. It can only get money by looting our resources through taxes or through the hidden tax of legalized counterfeiting known as inflation. There are some exceptions, of course, such as when the government sells stamps to collectors or carries our mail with gross inefficiency. But the overwhelming bulk of government revenues is acquired through taxation or its monetary equivalent. Actually, in the days of monarchy, and especially in the medieval period before the rise of the modern state, kings got the bulk of their income from their private estates, such as forests and agricultural lands. Their debt, in other words, was more private than public, and as a result, their debt amounted to next to nothing compared to the public debt that began with a flourish in the late 17th century. The public debt transaction, then, is very different from private debt. Instead of a low-time-preference creditor exchanging money for an IOU from a high-time-preference debtor, the government now receives money from creditors, both parties realizing that the money will be paid back not out of the pockets or the hides of the politicians and bureaucrats, but out of the looted wallets and purses of the hapless taxpayers, the subjects of the state. The government gets the money by tax coercion, and the public creditors, far from being innocents, know full well that their proceeds will come out of that self-same coercion. In short, public creditors are willing to hand over money to the government now in order to receive a share of tax loot in the future. This is the opposite of a free market or a genuinely voluntary transaction. Both parties are immorally contracting to participate in the violation of the property rights of citizens in the future. Both parties, therefore, are making agreements about other people's property, and both deserve the back of our hand. The public credit transaction is not a genuine contract that need be considered sacrosanct any more than robbers parceling out their share of loot in advance should be treated as some sort of sanctified contract. Any melding of public debt into a private transaction must rest on the common but absurd notion that taxation is really voluntary and that whenever the government does anything, we are willingly doing it. This convenient myth was wittily and trenchantly disposed of by the great economist Joseph Schumpeter. The theory which construes taxes on the analogy of club dues or the purchase of, say, a doctor, only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences is from scientific habits of mind. 
Morality and economic utility generally go hand in hand. Contrary to Alexander Hamilton, who spoke for a small but powerful clique of New York and Philadelphia public creditors, the national debt is not a national blessing. The annual government deficit plus the annual interest payment that keeps rising as the total debt accumulates increasingly channels scarce and precious private savings into wasteful government boondoggles which crowd out productive investments. Establishment economists, including Reaganists, cleverly fudge the issue by arbitrarily labeling virtually all government spending as investments, making it sound as if everything is fine and dandy because savings are being productively invested. In reality, however, government spending only qualifies as investment in an Orwellian sense. Government actually spends on behalf of the consumer goods and desires of bureaucrats, politicians, and their dependent client groups. Government spending, therefore, rather than being investment, is consumer spending of a peculiarly wasteful and unproductive sort, since it is indulged not by producers but by a parasitic class that is living off and increasingly weakening the productive private sector. Thus we see that statistics are not in the least scientific or value-free. How data are classified, whether, for example, government spending is consumption or investment, depends upon the political philosophy and insights of the classifier. Deficits and a mounting debt, therefore, are a growing and intolerable burden on the society and economy, both because they raise the tax burden and increasingly drain resources from the productive to the parasitic, counterproductive public sector. Moreover, when deficits are financed by expanding bank credit, in other words, by creating new money, matters become still worse, since credit inflation creates permanent and rising price inflation as well as waves of boom-bust business cycles. It is for all these reasons that the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, who, contrary to the myths of historians, were extraordinarily knowledgeable in economic and monetary theory, hated and reviled the public debt. Indeed, the national debt was paid off twice in American history, the first time by Thomas Jefferson, and the second, and undoubtedly the last time, by Andrew Jackson. Unfortunately, paying off a national debt that will soon reach $4 trillion would quickly bankrupt the entire country. Think about the consequence of imposing new taxes of $4 trillion in the United States next year. Another way, and almost as devastating a way, to pay off the public debt would be to print $4 trillion of new money, either in paper dollars or by creating new bank credit. This method would be extraordinarily inflationary, and prices would quickly skyrocket, ruining all groups whose earnings did not increase to the same extent, and destroying the value of the dollar. But in essence, this is what happens in countries that hyperinflate, as Germany did in 1923, and in countless countries since, particularly the Third World. If a country inflates the currency to pay off its debt, prices will rise so that the dollars or marks or pesos the creditor receives are worth a lot less than the dollars or pesos they originally lent out. When an American purchased a 10,000-mark German bond in 1914, it was worth several thousand dollars. Those 10,000 marks by late 1923 would not have been worth more than a stick of bubblegum. Inflation, then, is an underhanded and terribly destructive way of indirectly repudiating the public debt 
destructive because it ruins the currency unit which individuals and businesses depend upon for calculating all their economic decisions. I propose then a seemingly drastic but actually far less destructive way of paying off the public debt at a single blow, outright debt repudiation. Consider this question. Why should the poor, battered citizens of Russia or Poland or the other ex-communist countries be bound by the debts contracted by their former communist masters? In the communist situation, the injustice is clear that citizens struggling for freedom and for a free market economy shouldn't be taxed to pay for debts contracted by the monstrous former ruling class. But this injustice only differs by degree from normal public debt. For conversely, why should the communist governments of the Soviet Union have been bound by debts contracted by the czarist governments they hated and overthrew? And why should we, struggling American citizens of today, be bound by debts created by a past ruling elite who contracted these debts at our expense? One of the cogent arguments against paying blacks reparations for past slavery is that we, the living, were not slaveholders. Similarly, we, the living, did not contract for either the past or the present debts incurred by the politicians and bureaucrats in Washington. Although largely forgotten by historians and by the public, repudiation of public debt is a solid part of the American tradition. The first wave of repudiation of state debt came during the 1840s after the panics of 1837 and 1839. Those panics were the consequence of a massive inflationary boom fueled by the Whig-run Second Bank of the United States. Riding the wave of inflationary credit, numerous state governments, largely those run by the Whigs, floated an enormous amount of debt, most of which went into wasteful public works, euphemistically called internal improvements, and into the creation of inflationary banks. Outstanding public debt by state governments rose from 26 million to 170 million during the decade of the 1830s. Most of these securities were financed by British and Dutch investors. During the deflationary 1840s succeeding the panics, state governments faced repayment of their debt in dollars that were now more valuable than the ones they had borrowed. Many states, now largely in democratic hands, met the crisis by repudiating these debts, either totally or partially by scaling down the amount in readjustments. Specifically, of the 28 American states in the 1840s, nine were in the glorious position of having no public debt, and one, Missouri's, was negligible. Of the 18 remaining, nine paid the interest on their public debt without interruption, while another nine, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida, repudiated part or all of their payments, whereas the other five, Michigan, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Florida, totally and permanently repudiated their entire outstanding public debt. As in every debt repudiation, the result was to lift a great burden from the backs of the taxpayers in the defaulting and repudiating states. Apart from the moral or sanctity of contract arguments against repudiation that we have already discussed, the standard economic argument is that such repudiation is disastrous because who in his right mind would lend again to a repudiating government? But the effective counterargument has rarely been considered. Why should more private capital be poured down government rat holes? 
It is precisely the drying up of future public credit that constitutes one of the main arguments for repudiation, for it means beneficially drying up a major channel for the wasteful destruction of the savings of the public. What we want is abundant savings and investment in private enterprise and a lean, austere, low-budget, minimal government. The people and the economy can only wax fat and prosperous when their government is starved and puny. The next great wave of state debt repudiation came in the South after the blight of Northern occupation and Reconstruction had been lifted from them. Eight Southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia proceeded during the late 1870s and early 1880s under democratic regimes to repudiate the debt foisted upon their taxpayers by the corrupt and wasteful carpetbag radical Republican governments under Reconstruction. So what can be done now? The current federal debt is $3.5 trillion. Approximately $1.4 trillion, or 40%, is owned by one or another agency of the federal government. It is ridiculous for a citizen to be taxed by one arm of the federal government, the IRS, to pay interest and principal on debt owned by another agency of the federal government. It would save the taxpayers a great deal of money and spare savings from further waste to simply cancel that debt outright. The alleged debt is simply an accounting fiction that provides a mask over reality and furnishes a convenient means for mulcting the taxpayer. Thus, most people think that the Social Security Administration takes their premiums and accumulates it, perhaps by sound investment, and then pays back the insured citizen when he turns 65. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is no insurance and there is no fund, as there indeed must be in any system of private insurance. The federal government simply takes the Social Security premiums, taxes of the young person, spends them in the general expenditures of the Treasury, and then, when the person turns 65, taxes someone else to pay the insurance benefit. Social Security, perhaps the most revered institution in the American polity, is also the greatest single racket. It's simply a giant Ponzi scheme controlled by the federal government. But this reality is masked by the Social Security Administration's purchase of government bonds, the Treasury then spending these funds on whatever it wishes. But the fact that the SSA has government bonds in its portfolio and collects interest and payments from the American taxpayer allows it to masquerade as a legitimate insurance business. Canceling federal agency-held bonds, then, reduces the federal debt by 40%. I would advocate going on to repudiate the entire debt outright and let the chips fall where they may. The glorious result would be an immediate drop of $200 billion in federal expenditures with at least a fighting chance of an equivalent cut in taxes. But if this scheme is considered too draconian, why not treat the federal government as any private bankrupt is treated, forgetting about Chapter 11? The government is an organization, so why not liquidate the assets of that organization and pay the creditors, the government bondholders, a pro rata share of those assets? This solution would cost the taxpayer nothing and once again relieve him of $200 billion in annual interest payments. The United States government should be forced to disgorge its assets sell them at auction, and then pay off the creditors accordingly. What government assets? There are a great deal of assets, from TVA to the national lands, 
to various structures such as the post office. The massive CIA headquarters at Langley, Virginia should raise a pretty penny for enough condominium housing for the entire workforce inside the Beltway. Perhaps we could eject the United Nations from the United States, reclaim the land and buildings, and sell them for luxury housing for the east side glitterati. Another serendipity out of this process would be a massive privatization of the socialized land of the western United States and of the rest of America as well. This combination of repudiation and privatization would go a long way to reducing the tax burden, establishing fiscal soundness, and desocializing the United States. In order to go this route, however, we first have to rid ourselves of the fallacious mindset that conflates public and private, and that treats government debt as if it were a productive contract between two legitimate property owners. The Ludwig von Mises Institute hopes you have enjoyed this audio essay. For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org. Ariel Scarcella is a YouTuber with over 600,000 subscribers to her channel. It's focused on the LGBT community, women, culture, and more. Her video, I'm a Lesbian Woman and I'm Leaving the Insane Progressive Left, hit the internet a few weeks ago and blew up. Here is just the first minute of that video. I'm not one of them. Hi. I'm Arielle. I'm a lesbian. And I don't think gender is a social construct. I don't think cis straight white men are evil. I don't believe that genital preferences are transphobic or that there are 97 genders. I don't think that male sex offenders belong in women's prisons. I don't think it's normal for people to be praised for walking around with shirts that say kill turfs. I don't think like these people and I no longer want to be associated with them. I've reached peak LGBT. This is my coming out video. Never in my life have I been more canceled, tortured, tormented, harassed than by members of my own community. Never have I witnessed literal mentally ill individuals who are latching themselves onto the LGBT community without actually being LGBT for the sake of oppression points, external validation, and sympathy. Never have I seen such disrespect from younger LGBT people to the older lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender advocates who have been paving the way for us for longer than we've all been alive. Never have I seen people that use the word bigot so frequently. Ariel Scorsella, are you there? Ariel? Yeah, I'm here. How are you guys? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I, I know it takes courage to associate with people like me. Uh, even my wife doesn't like to do it. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I think a lot of people say that to, to the people that I've been, you know, doing interviews with. But I, I think it's great that you're giving you're giving me the opportunity to reach a different audience. And I, I should be grateful and not not and not like afraid, you know. Well, thank you. We're, we're really differently. We're really happy you're here. Uh, tell me, what what was it? Was it one thing, one day that tore this for you, or was it just a slow accretion over time? Oh, it was definitely definitely a slow buildup. But I think the 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 main thing that I when I went to um, I went to Vegas recently about a, about two three weeks ago, right before I came to Sydney, and I met up with these two YouTube friends of mine. Um, one of them had never, well, one YouTube friend of mine and a friend of hers, so a friend of a friend. And the person that had never seen my content before just went on my Twitter and saw, um, you know, that it said women empowerment and LGBT. And they automatically, we met, we met in person, we went out to dinner and she said, you know, I, I'm so happy that you're so chill in person because I saw that you had 
you know, a rainbow flag in your bio. And I thought you were one of those crazy people. And I was like, God, like, that's like, I have to tell, I have to tell people that I'm not one of those crazy people. (laughs) Like that, that's how insane, like that straight people are seeing even how crazy this is getting, you know? And that's, it's, it's really, it's, it's troubling to those of us, you know, I, I have been a, a supporter of gay people since literally before you were born. And people were always saying to me, no, no, once you open that door, there's this terrible slippery slope. And right at this minute, it looks like they were right. I mean, it looks like there is this terrible slippery slope. Does it have to be that way? Yeah, I, I, that's the thing, though. I think I don't think that the majority uh, um, of LGBT of actual LGBT people <laughs> that yeah. are older want anything to do with this. They're just terrified because of you know they're terrified of things happening like what happened to me at Mardi Gras. Like you know my event got got um, booted off of the Mardi Gras events page because like a thousand people were like, oh this is the worst person. You can't have her on. You know, uh, speaking for Mardi Gras, especially not in my home country of Australia, da da da. And it's like, it's okay to disagree with somebody, but if it's it's not okay to deplatform them because there are so many people that I'm speaking up for that agree with everything I say, including a number of trans people. A lot of trans people, they usually happen to be way older, not way older, but you know, and they're you know older than 25. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, that's older. The internet, you know, this is full of young little kids these days. Um, but most of the people that are making us look foolish, in my opinion, are, are very young, very, very entitled. Most of the time, in my opinion, aren't even LGBT. They're just young kids that are, that are expressing their, they're expressing, um, it's like gender expression, not even, it doesn't even have to do with actual gender. Mm -hmm. Um, so they just want to dress differently. And I think that's great, but then they're, they're coming onto the scene and, and telling everybody else how to be quote, queer, even though I hate that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that word. aside from the uh, the thing at the Mardi Gras, I mean, is this, do you feel that this move is going to threaten the way you make a living? That's the thing. I thought about this in a business sense too, right? It wasn't just about mor- morals. Of course it was, because that's the kind of person I am. Um, but I'm never going to win them over, like ever. Yeah. So why am I wasting my time and energy you know, trying to appease them when I don't agree with them. I don't want to, you know, even be associated with them at this point. And I felt like, listen, I, I need to make a statement because I've, I've kind of always been in the middle. You know, I've always been at odds, you know, with them. Right. But I've never publicly said, like, listen, I do not even like them. I don't want to be associated with them even. Um, and when I did that, when I finally spoke my truth, it just it just it went viral. It was like the first I've been doing this for 10 years. It's the first viral video I've ever had. Huh. It's funny, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> Do you have any insight into what what happened? Why did this particular group of people get to take over this movement? I mean, why aren't uh, wiser voices prevailing? Um, I think I don't know how to answer that because I'm not sure. But what I think I think the uh, my friend Tim Pool, uh, he he runs a YouTube channel as well. I think he said it best. Um. I think it was in the UK where there was a group of, you know, progressives that were constantly storming any, anytime, any, any, um, you know, females, you know, gathered at a space to discuss how these, uh, the trans rights or anything that was, you know, any laws that were changing to help trans people or LGBT people or whatever, they would gather and and they would be like, okay, let's have a meeting to discuss how these new laws are going to affect us as women. 
the progressives would would charge the building. They would throw rocks. They would, you know, graffiti, you know, the library. It's like crazy shit like that. Hmm. Um, the people on the right don't usually do that. So I think it's a matter of like safety and just like just being like, OK, like we're, we don't want these people to come and harass us. So just shut them up and we'll just deplatform these people. Yeah. Um, yeah, like there, there's a, a YouTuber or, you know, a media person called Megan Murphy. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, she's based in Vancouver, uh, very much a feminist, um, not even in the I don't even know if you call it traditional way, but like she just believes that females are different than males, like plain, like simple. Right. Right. You would think that now these you can't even say that these days. Um, she she's more hated than I am at some point in some ways. And she doesn't even have like a tenth of the following. <laughs> And she she's gotten she's trying she tried she's tried to make um, things happen all over the world. And most of the time um, she'll do things, you know, she'll do free events um, at like libraries and even the library. Once they see the the, the negative connotation that's, you know, being is like, who the hell is going to go to a library? Libraries don't even make money. <laughs> and they're even like, we don't want to be associated with this person. We're so sorry. We didn't know she was this bad. First of all, she's not bad. But I think it's I think it's that they're bullies. And they have they have the time, which is true entitlement, right? Yeah. They have the time and effort and maybe money even in some cases because they're, you know. This is, I, I only have time for one more question, but what I, this yeah, is a, yeah. a weird moment in which a guy like my friend Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew and, and believes homosexuality mm-hmm. is a sin. And another friend of mine, Dave Rubin, who is a gay guy, I think uh, an atheist, uh, are basically on the same side. Is there right, right. is there a philosophy that is ultimately going to unite us? Is there something we all believe in that is going to make it possible for us to become a new uh, um, a, a new group in and of ourselves? Yeah, I think it's I think we're all based on like the people that you just mentioned are, are logical. You know, <laughs> we're, like that's yeah. that's the big the biggest way to that's the best way to say it. Um, you know, we have people these days saying that you know, people that look like you can be lesbians. Like back in the day, we'd be like, ew, like, mm. how dare you call yourself a lesbian? You have not now all of a sudden, like, since, you know, gender is, is, you know, in the brain, which yes, I agree, because there's, there's been studies that show that, um, you know, we're saying that you don't have to transition at all. You can just walk around saying that you're a woman and that you're a woman. And it's in the law in, in some cases. And, it's like, but that's not what the woman experience is. Like right. you're walk, you're being, you're being seen as a man. Yeah, you can, you can identify however the hell you want, but that's not true identity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is saying, listen, I identify this way. Everyone needs to treat me this way, including the law. And All that's right. where I disagree. That's illogical. I have to stop you there. But Ariel Scarcel, thank you very much for coming on. Good luck, and I hope we get to talk again. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that clip from The Andrew Clavin Show. If you did, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you stay up to date on all our future content. Now, I want to talk about, as, as I said, this, this student loan issue. There are many villains in the story of, of the student debt bubble. The universities that charge exorbitant tuition rates simply because they can, bilking working families out of thousands of dollars for an education that isn't worth even a fraction of that cost, uh, they should be first in line to absorb the blame. And it seems like somehow they're not. At least when you listen to somebody like Bernie Sanders talk about it, he's not pointing so much to the universities themselves. 
because you know on the far left you don't want to upset academia we, 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 because we want to to, tr- to trust academia. So, I, but I think they're first in line. I'd blame them first, but it's a long line indeed. The government has earned a hefty portion of our collective scorn for issuing these predatory loans to kids fresh out of high school with no assets, no income. And then blame goes to the public schools who are were funneling kids into the university system indiscriminately, regardless of an individual kid's uh, aptitudes and skill set, just pushing them all into to colleges. Parents as well are, are adding to the pressure, which I'm convinced for many parents, pressuring their kids into a four-year institution, it has m- as much to do with, with the, the parents' own vanity as it does their concern for their for their child. I'm not saying they're not concerned for their child, but I think part of it, at least, is that the parent wants to be able to say, my kid is going to such and such school. Parent doesn't want to say, my kid's not in college. But there's another group. So we can thank all of those people for the $1.5 trillion in student debt. There's another group, though, that seems to have largely somehow escaped the public's wrath despite their unique role in driving this problem, and that would be employers. We take it for granted that our kids need, quote unquote, to obtain a college degree because so many jobs require them, but the need is artificial. In the vast majority of cases, thousands of employers across the country have chosen to artificially inflate their job requirements, uh, often demanding that applicants have, have, have degrees for positions that absolutely do not really necessitate them. And they've chosen to do this, and it's only getting worse. You know, uh, positions that didn't require any degree 20 years ago now require a bachelor's degree, and positions that required a bachelor's degree 20 years ago now require a master's. And, you know, before you know it, you're going to need to have a, a, a PhD to be a sales associate at uh, J.C. Penney. This, again, is is artificial. People without degrees could perform the tasks necessary for most of these positions, but employers disqualify them from consideration right out of the gate and for no good reason. Now, obviously, and every time I talk about this, there are, I, I, I hear from people saying, what about doctors and lawyers? And Yes, obviously, some jobs do require additional formal schooling, but not every job does and not even most jobs. Nobody is suggesting that a guy with a high school diploma should be hired right off the street by Johns Hopkins to perform brain surgery. No one is suggesting that. But most jobs outside of science and medicine have to be learned by doing. You know, uh, the, the vast majority of people who right now have a job, any job, outside of science and medicine, almost everything they're doing right now I mean, including you, if you're listening to this and you have a job and that is not the, that's not in the science and medicine field, most likely, if you think about it, everything you do in your job, you learned how to do in the job itself. Or these were skills that you brought in um, uh, uh, on your own that had nothing to do with schooling whatsoever. That's how most jobs are learned. They're learned by doing. Now, it's not as though one excuse you hear is, well, companies are saving money on, on having to tra- train new hires by requiring the, P- the, the college degree. And so this is about saving money. That's not the case. The companies still have to train the college graduates. You know, these employers are, are discovering to their shock somehow that, you know, when, it, when, a, when, when someone comes in at the age of 23 and they've been in a classroom their whole life and haven't done anything, 
you still have to train them just as much as you would have to train someone without a college degree. So what's the point of the degree? It, it serves no purpose, no function. Um, now, it might be argued that employers look for the degree because even if the degree is in dance theory or comparative religion, it at least proves that the applicant is competent and hardworking and so on. Well, I, you know, I, I would like to see some research, research supporting that assumption because I don't believe it. I see no reason to conclude that college grads are any smarter, any more competent, any harder working than non-college grads. I understand that that's maybe the assumption that employers are making. I'm saying it's a bad assumption. I'm saying it's an assumption based on nothing. In fact, I would wager that the scales probably tip the other way because a 23-year-old who's been working and supporting himself since the age of 18 has already demonstrated at a minimum that he has the basic life skills necessary to be a functioning adult in society. There are many college grads who don't even have that. Because if you graduate college with, with, with a, a bachelor's degree, congratulations, not taking anything away from you. But it doesn't prove that you know how to do anything. It doesn't prove you have any skills at all. It doesn't prove that you're a functioning adult. It doesn't really prove anything. You know, what it proves in and of itself, in and of itself, all the degree, if, if you tell me, if, if, all, if the only information I have about someone is they have a college degree, you tell me that, you know, Bob Smith has a college degree. What does that tell you about Bob Smith? That the only thing it tells you is that he either had the money to get a college education or he was willing to take on the debt. That's the only thing it tells you. Now, it might be that, that Bob Smith is a brilliant guy, a hard worker, so on and so forth. What I'm saying, though, is that the fact of the degree doesn't tell you that. you got to look deeper into who Bob Smith is. Thank you for tuning into The Daily Wire, one of the fastest-growing conservative media outlets in the entire country. If you enjoyed this video, uh, be sure to give it a like and a subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss out on any of our content. Here's a video uh, maybe you saw on, on Friday. I wrote a thing about it. It's a video from a drag brunch. And a drag brunch is a thing that white liberals go to where they eat brunch and they watch a man dress like a woman dance badly. Um, and this is something they, you know, they enjoy going to for some reason. Only at this brunch, somebody brought their kid and the kid was, was brought to the front of the, of the uh, festivities, put on a chair, and the drag queen danced suggestively for the child. And the whole scene looks exactly like it would at a, at a bachelor party where you've got the, you know, the, the, the guy um, sitting there in a, in a chair while the stripper is, is dancing. So it's the exact same kind of thing. Except in this case, it's a drag queen and what looks to be maybe a six or seven year old girl. Uh, watch. Could you be the one to call when I lose control? Revolting, vile, evil, infuriating. All those words and many others come to mind. Okay, so the video of the um, drag queen dancing for the 
for the little girl. Uh, first thing, obviously, you know what I'm going to say. This is child abuse. And everybody, all the adults in that room, in that video, should be, go, should, should be going to prison. Uh, in, a, in a sane and just society, what you would see in that video at the end are a bunch of police officers breaking the door down and uh, cuffing those people and, and throwing them in the paddy wagon and bringing them to jail. That's what should happen. And if you somehow don't agree or you, or you don't see how this is child abuse, then keep in mind that drag shows are burlesque. It's, a, it's burlesque, except that the only difference is that it's men pretending to be women. Well, let me ask you, do you think it'd be appropriate to bring a six-year-old to a burlesque show in, in Vegas with women? I mean, would anybody do that? Would, and if someone did do that, would, would anyone else, you know, defend it? No. We would all agree that, uh, you know, of course, if you're an adult, you want to go to a burlesque show, you're, you're free to do, to do that. That's, 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 uh, you, you can do that. But uh, to bring your child is completely crazy. Now, uh, but, okay, now we, we, we replace those women with men and all of a sudden it's family friendly? Does that make any sense? It's the same thing with child drag queens. We would all agree, I hope, I assume, that to have a, a, a seven-year-old recruited by a burlesque troupe would be uh, exploitation and, 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 and pedophilic and, and just horrible. Nobody would agree with that. Yet, it's okay if it's a boy. So it, it would be, we would all agree, wrong for a seven-year-old girl to perform burlesque, but a boy can do it? Makes absolutely no sense. So clearly this is child abuse. But there's another thing I wanted to, I wanted to f- focus on in that video. And that, uh, that's the, the men in the background. You saw that whole line of men sitting at tables with big stupid grins on their face watching while this happens. And I really believe that the story of child exploitation in our culture and the proliferation of child sexual abuse, the normalization of it, the mainstreaming of it, is largely a story of men, of fathers and of husbands, failing to do their job as men. All right, folks, Tuesday, Tuesday is Super Tuesday, the superest of all Tuesdays, March 3rd. And that is going to be the day on which we find out whether Bernie Sanders is the nominee, because either he runs away with this thing or we're going to get an open convention. We're going to know all of that as the day drags on. Good news. We're going to be covering it live here at Daily Wire. We're going to be doing a long Daily Wire backstage. That means me, God King Jeremy Boring, means Andrew Clavin, means Michael Knowles, plus a cavalcade of stars will be stopping by to discuss what exactly is happening in breaking news in real time. Go check us out at dailywire.com for all the coverage.